<laughs> so um, I've been thinking for a few weeks now that as I'm beginning to wind down this Sunday morning series uh, in the book of Genesis, we're only going to have two more weeks in it on Sunday morning. Uh, I thought we'll take some time and uh, relook at a few things maybe that you had questions about or maybe I didn't have time to cover on Sunday morning. So I'm calling this Extra Genesis, and it'll probably take us um, to about mid-August, I imagine. We'll take a couple of months and talk about the different things that uh, I've touched upon that maybe left, your, left you wondering or scratching your head a little bit. And uh, so tonight, what I want to do is I want to to tell you uh, what I hope to accomplish over the next couple of months in our study together. So number one, I want it to complement what we've already covered. So there will, there will be some overlap a little bit, but a lot of the stuff that I'm going to tell you is things that I had to set aside simply because Sunday morning is uh, both probably not the place for deeper discussion on some of these things and not enough time. Secondly, uh, I hope what we can do is see how God interacts uh, with uh, very flawed human people, and it's found in the first book of our Bible. When you look at the characters, and we're going to see an illustration of this tonight, uh, you're going to say, what was God thinking choosing some of the people that he did to be used to kind of right the wrongs in the world? Thirdly, I want to take a look at some of the controversies that are found in the book of Genesis. And I want to say up front with a disclaimer that uh, some of these discussions have been going on for hundreds of years. Uh, there are different kind of camps that different theologians find themselves in and as they try to figure out things just like we will see next week when we talk a little bit about creation how does that jive with what we've discovered in science and all that type of thing? Uh, I hope, though, that no matter where we kind of fall in perspective on some of this, that um, we just have a great discussion. We see kind of both the complexity but the richness of the book of Genesis. And I think it continues on for millennium, really, as we engage with the stories that are there and as we kind of see what God is doing from the very start of creation and even to this very day. Uh, so the stories that are found in the book of Genesis, I think, are connected to a bigger purpose than giving us a straightforward historical account. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was in school and you were studying maybe the birth of our country, uh, and as you were looking at dates and people and places, you thought that the way it is recorded in the history book is the way it happened. And what you'll find is if, let's say, you chose to dig into U.S. history a little bit, that there will be different viewpoints on different eras of our nation's history, simply because every author that records a history, in quote, has a bigger purpose than giving you facts. And usually there is some type of perspective, there's some type of interpretive lens that every author has. And that's important no matter what you read. I don't care if you're reading uh, a historical account of the history of our country, or if you're reading a biography on John F. Kennedy or whatever, every author takes what he has researched and puts it into a particular package. He usually doesn't, or she usually doesn't, give you all the details, all the facts. There's usually another side of the story often. And so you have to ask the question, what is this author trying to accomplish in the particular book that he is uh, writing? Or, and I keep using the word he. You understand it, it, it's he or she. Uh, authors that do a great job on uh, giving different recordings of different things that happen in our history or perhaps world history or whatever it may be. So that is applicable too, as well to the book of Genesis, 
there is a bigger purpose. I hope that comes through in the weeks ahead than simply kind of giving a straightforward account of creation or the life of Abraham or what Jacob went through. There's a connection uh, between these stories. And part of the task of reading the book of Genesis is to understand why these stories are recorded the way they are and how are they viewing it. And to do that, you really need kind of ancient eyes to be able to think through their mindset of how they're recording the information that they're recording. And by the time you get to the end of the book, uh, one of the things that I think you'll discover is that all of these stories are interlocking and they're serving a bigger purpose. And the key question to the book of Genesis is what is this book about? What is it really trying to accomplish? So to get an <clears throat> introduction to that tonight, I want to just talk a little bit about Genesis in general. And then um, if along the way you have questions, you know, just, you know, raise them. We'll take some rabbit trails or whatever. Uh, I hope this is a fun a study for us rather than an intimidating one. And the way to do that is just to say there's some things that we can learn, whether we agree with them in total or not. These are all things that I think uh, we can see surface out of the text. So that's kind of what I hope to accomplish over the next couple of months. And uh, do you have any thoughts or questions on that? Okay, so let's start with the genesis of Genesis. And uh, the way we kind of begin this is talking about uh, a little bit of information that we need when we're reading the book of Genesis. So I have three main points on this slide here. Number one is Genesis is an ancient story, duh. It's a couple of thousand years old. And um, that means something very significantly. First of all, it's not a modern textbook giving us a detailed account of history. We must remember that what we are given in the book of Genesis lays against the backdrop of the ancient Near East. There are other things that are going on. There are other people groups. There are other languages. There's other writings. Uh, all of this is to say that when the writer of Genesis gives to us what he gives to us, then what we find is that sometimes it is set against the backdrop of other things that are already known by the people that are living during that day and age. So it's important to understand that the book of Genesis is, is not a cookbook for living in the 21st century. There are things we can apply. We've been trying to do that on Sunday morning a little bit, but it is not a book of ancient principles for modern living. It's not even a code of conduct. Um, as I said, getting started, uh, the book of Genesis is absolutely full of flawed individuals. And you think of Abraham, and he tries to uh, uh, give, it, give it the perspective that his wife is his sister. Isaac follows in the same uh, boat. And then Jacob is one that deceives his father Isaac to get the blessing. That's what we're going to be talking about this coming Sunday. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Judah we're going to look at here tonight that, I mean, oh my goodness, you go, why would the writer include this? You would think that he would look the other way on this story. And yet, Judah is the tribe from which uh, the promise comes that there would be this one that would sit on the throne of David and all this and that. So we have some things that we're going to sort through. Uh, and sometimes it is quite embarrassing to tell you the honest truth. But uh, what we'll find is that it's not a code of conduct. So you can't follow in Jacob's shoes, Joseph's shoes, Isaac's shoes, or Abraham's shoes um, without some discernment and figuring out what applies, what doesn't apply, and what is kind of timeless versus what is set in, in time and in context or circumstance. Uh, secondly, Genesis is one in a series. Now, it's not an individual book. It's a part of what we call the Pentateuch, 
um, the first five books of the Old Testament. I list them for you there, Exodus, Genesis, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is also called by our Jewish friends, the Torah. And uh, Genesis plays an important part as it's connected to the other four books as well. Now, it's interesting that it takes on a little bit different dynamic. Genesis is stories. By the time you get to Leviticus, it's full of laws. And uh, when you think about Deuteronomy and Leviticus, they are books that are filled with uh, commandments and laws uh, for a new uh, nation that we call Israel. And to those of us in the 21st century, as we read these things, they are tedious. Some of them are quite odd. I mean, just strange. Some of the dietary laws, some of the, the laws about not wearing a blended fabric and all kinds of things like that. And some of them are a bit awkward at points because we don't know what to do with it. Um, things like um, judgment on, on certain people if they do certain things or why certain people are considered unclean simply because they're having their menstrual period. Just some very odd type things are found in the book. Thirdly, Genesis is circumstantial and it doesn't exist in a vacuum. And so this overall story of Genesis is what it, God is doing, I think, to right the wrongs that begin to creep into the human experience. So in other words, when you read the book of Genesis, keep an eye in the different stories of how God keeps starting over. He keeps starting over. Um, we think of Noah, he's starting over. We think of Abraham, he's starting over. Uh, we think of different things that are kind of found in the book that seem to be a restart uh, to something that God wanted to happen um, in the creation account in the first couple of chapters. So do you, have, uh, do you have some thoughts, comments, or questions on this slide at all? So... <clears throat> In order to kind of figure out some of the questions that I've raised so far, you have to look at some clues. So in Genesis, you have to do some detective work. And I've told you on Sunday morning that I've come to the conclusion, I think that Genesis is written a little bit later in the history of the nation of Israel. And I uh, wanna show you how uh, different scholars come to this. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn open to Genesis chapter 12 for a moment. This is the account of Abraham being called by God, and it's the first initiation of the Abrahamic covenant. But when you look at what's also found in this chapter, it gives us some clues that if the book wasn't written a little bit later on, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. So in Genesis chapter 12, it says here um, in the first few verses about how God says to Abram to leave his country and that he's going to be a great nation. His name is going to be blessed, so on and so forth. And um, it tells us his age in verse four. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran and took his wife, Sarai, and his nephew, Lot, all the possessions they accumulated and the people they acquired. Uh, there's a little thing acquired. There's a hint that he had slaves. Um, and then uh, they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. Well, okay, great. He's on this journey. That's where our focus is. However, look at verse six. Abraham traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree Amora at Shechem. Then it says this. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Now, you might just pass right over that. Um, but if you think about it, if the Canaanites were living in the land then, it's almost as if the writer is saying, at the time he is writing it, the Canaanites are not in the land now. So we know of the story of Joshua and the invasion that he leads uh, into the land of Canaan and he drives out beginning with the battle of Jericho and so forth, uh, he begins driving out the Canaanites. 
but here, the story is told if it's, okay, the Canaanites uh, were living in the land then, okay? Well, if the writer is writing early, um, he would know that. He wouldn't have to make that comment, number one. If the writer is later, then it's a qualifying statement. And it, what it's saying is, okay, even though the Canaanites are not a dominant population right now, they were at the time Abraham left Haran. Does that make sense, everybody? So it's being written from a perspective as if it's looking back on um, a set of circumstances. And that's just kind of a subtle type of thing, but it's repeated a couple times. Also in verse seven of chapter 13, it says the same thing. Chapter seven, uh, 13, verse seven, uh, it says in verse six, but the land could not support them while they stayed together. That's talking about Abraham and Lot separating because they needed enough uh, pasture land for their flock, for their possessions and so forth. And then it says in verse seven, and quarreling arose between Abram's herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot. So they're fighting about what field their flock is going to feed off of, that type of thing. And then you have this statement. It doesn't need to be made if it's being written early. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So the writer is saying at that time, it's crowded. It's overcrowded. Abraham's uh, flocks, Lot's flocks, the Canaanites' uh, flocks, the Perizzites' flocks are all crowding in. And so they needed to kind of separate out uh, to, uh, to have enough uh, land whereby it can sustain their herds. Does that make sense or did I leave you confused there? Any thoughts? So if that's the case, then we have to ask the question, when was Genesis written? If it's later, if you get these little hints that it, it's a writer looking back on time. A lot of scholars believe that the chronicling of the history of Israel really started more around the time of King David and his court. And it went into kind of hyperspeed after uh, people went into exile to Babylon. And as they're trying to come back into the land, they're trying to establish who they are. And to do that, they need to know their story. Now, that is not to say that there weren't oral traditions and even writings prior to the final composition of the book of Genesis as we have in our Bible. But what it is saying is the editors and those that took that information needed in some way to package it so as the nation of Israel can refine their identity uh, as they are attempting to come back into a land that they have been driven out of. So you see on the screen here that the Babylonians march in and basically bulldoze the temple down in 586 and took some captives like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and so forth. Um, but the key question would be, if we're heading back, uh, who are we if we don't have a king? if we don't have a land and if we don't have a temple. And these are all things that I think Genesis begins to grapple with. It continues on through the Torah, but it is then found also in the historical books, specifically in 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, where we find uh, a lot of the, the history of the nation of Israel and the turbulence that it encountered not only through the Babylonian invasion, but even prior to that, when the 12 tribes split over tax issues and 10 tribes follow one king to the north and the two tribes called Judah follow another king to the south. And so you have kind of this rival thing going on. And um, as they're heading back into the land, um, there's a couple of questions on their mind. Who's going to lead us? Who's qualified to lead us? And has God really abandoned us? Or is he still with us? Are we still his people? Uh, so it makes a lot of sense that what they're going to need as they look back 
on their history is some type of accounting of how they became, became the people they became and how they can recapture some of that, not only early on, but specifically they would love to recapture the glory days of King David. That's when they were at their height under the reigns of David and Solomon. So um, think of the Old Testament as a whole as Israel's story that is unfolding, but parts of it is written in light of this national trauma that they had come through of being exiled to Babylon. And of course, um, it gives an accounting. A lot of the information in the Old Testament rehearses the deliverance from Egypt in the Exodus. Why is that the case? Because it was that great moment in history when slave people were set free and, and the, these individuals that want to come back to the land are also individuals that were basically slaves, but under King Cyrus, the king of the Medo-Persian empire, they can go back to the land. Well, who are we? What do we do now? What's our identification? How can we make sure that we are not um, sent back into exile again? So a concentration on a lot of the laws that are found in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy are basically ways of trying to safeguard a second deportation or an, a, another exile, if you will. So that never really happens though. They go back, but they're still not free. Medo-Persia is conquered by Greece, then Greece is conquered by Rome. And by the time you get to the New Testament, you've had a succession of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And they were never ever fully free, but they had more autonomy than they had when they were taken in captivity to Babylon. So that's a lot of information there, but um, do, does it make sense to you? Do you have any thoughts? So you're doing some detective work, basically. So if you were to look at the book of Genesis in kind of a, from, from an airplane viewpoint from 30,000 feet, you're going to notice, obviously at the beginning, an account of the creation of the world. Um, but it seems, and we're going to talk about this next week, that it's a restart from something that's already there. And we'll talk about that next week. And then you find that reordering of things occurring again and again. And I already mentioned that earlier about a new beginning with Noah, a new beginning with Abraham, and even some smaller beginnings that you find in the book of Genesis to kind of reestablish God with his creation and uh, to, to start over. Now, the device that the writer is going to use is uh, 10 sections of the book of Genesis. And you see all the references on the screen there. Uh, and it's translated, this is the account of. So I'm just going to look at two of them uh, so you get the idea. So in chapter 2, verse 4, you see it says here, this is the account of the heavens and earth when they were created. So that's a block of material that the writer is going to give to us. And then what he's uh, wanting to change gears in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, this is the written account of Adam's line. So you have creation, you're introduced to these two characters, Adam and Eve, and then there's an accounting of the descendants of Adam. And then if you move to the next one in chapter six, verse nine, I'm not going to go through all these. It says, this is the account of Noah. And then there's the story of Noah. So sometimes this is the account of is a story Sometimes this is the account of is a genealogy. So if you took the time and looked at all those references, there are 10 sections to the book of Genesis, and all of them are introduced by this Hebrew phrase, a toledot, a toledot. This is the account of, or it can be translated if you have a different translation. This is, um, these are the descendants of, sometimes it's translated that way as well. So you, you keep 
you keep an eye on that as you read through the book. And uh, these 10 sections uh, are heading somewhere. We don't know where it's at as we begin the book. We don't know where it's heading, but it is a story that is leading somewhere. And so we need to kind of keep that in the back of our mind. Thoughts? So here's a map that basically this is your whole Old Testament world right here. When you get to the New Testament, uh, the geography of the New Testament is much bigger. It goes all the way from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. However, the Old Testament is confined to this area that is called Mesopotamia, which means the land between or the land in the middle of. Uh, up at the top there, you see it says the Fertile Crescent, and that leads over into Asia Minor. Those, that's where the Apostle Paul did a lot of his missionary journeys. But I want you to note that there is uh, a couple of things here that's important to, to understand. When you, when you look at the promise that is made to Abraham, it says, this is going to be your land, and you're going to be a great nation all, all the way from the river of Euphrates, all the way down to the Egyptian territory, so this whole area then becomes in the Old Testament, it becomes a, uh, the phrase, the promised land. And that's what a lot of bickering is still about between uh, Arab people and Jewish people. Uh, whose land is this and where, where do we have a right? So initially the Canaanites lived in this stretch through here. Uh, this down here is the Dead Sea, if you follow north up to the Sea of Galilee, and that's the Jordan River. And um, Jerusalem, the capital here, is um, uh, kind of right by the Dead Sea. And what you'll find is that this uh, uh, territory here, Canaan, is where um, Joshua crosses the Jordan River heads into Jericho, and, be, and the Canaanites begin to be driven out. Uh, and yet the, the land is continued to be called the land of Canaan. Over here to the east, you have Babylon, and you have Assyria. So Assyria is up along the Tigris River. Babylon is along the Euphrates River. Uh, down here is Egypt by the Nile River. <clears throat> and you've heard me mention a few times that in the Old Testament, uh, you have three dominant um, empires that are all vying for control of this whole area, and that's Assyria, Babylon, and Egypt. And where is this group of nomads that become a nation as they head into this land of Canaan? Where do they sit amongst these empires? Well, they become kind of stuck in the middle, and they are constantly trying to make uh, alliances with some of these nations, depending upon who is going to protect them. And there, and so there's a lot of that type of intrigue that's going on in the Old Testament here. Just one more thing about this map. Uh, down here under Sumer, you see Ur, uh, and you've heard the phrase Ur of the Chaldees or Chaldeans. Um, that is the territory that belongs to Babylon. And um, this is where Abraham leaves, and he sets out toward a land that God will show him. Eventually, he'll, um, he'll make his way uh, toward the west and so forth. But it is also believed, as you can see on the, the map there, that right around Ur might have been the initial location of what is uh, called the Garden of Eden. Can't know that for sure. But um, what we find is that uh, this whole territory is the territory that 99% uh, of the Old Testament is located in some uh, part of this map. Um, there are some cities that are more important than others on this map. For example, uh, Nineveh is the great city that Jonah is told to go to. Um, 
when Abraham leaves Ur of the Chaldeans, this is a very sophisticated, um, progressive area in its day. And what we find is when God calls upon him to leave this territory, he's going to uh, he's going to be basically uh, leaving uh, a very sophisticated um, city in the empire of Babylon to go to who knows where. So um, I just wanted to kind of let you get your eyes on that a little bit. Do you have any thoughts there? Any comments or questions on that map? Okay, I'll keep going if you don't have any questions. <clears throat> okay, this might generate a little bit of conversation. So <clears throat> when we talk about mythology, we usually think of it in terms of Greek mythology and crazy characters and crazy gods and crazy stories that you know is not true. I want you to frame your thinking a little bit differently than that. When we use the term mythology, um, it's a literary genre. And what I mean by that is it's how the ancient people saw their world. It's how they explained their world. It is how um, they tried to figure out how the world works. So. Uh, when you're reading, a genre is a type of literature, and every genre has certain rules by which they operate. So, in other words, you don't read poetry the same way you read a narrative, and so on and so forth. There are different types of literature. But one thing that we tend to do when we read the book of Genesis is we tend to take our own genres and read it back into Genesis. So in other words, you know, um, there's movements out there and you can do a search on the internet if you want to do this. Of everyone that is trying to say Genesis is giving us a scientific account of how creation happened. It's impossible because that's not what it's trying to do. That's not we're trying to take a science genre and impose it upon an ancient world. So when we do that, then we're imposing a 21st century viewpoint on ancient history and we're confusing categories here. So when we talk about mythology, we're not talking about something that we're, is necessarily uh, boy, that's crazy. That it's like science fiction to use our genre. You know, you know it's not true, but it's entertaining. Mythology is um, their contemporary thinking, how they saw the world, the way they thought the world worked. Next week, I'm going to show you a perspective in in picture form of how they thought the world was arranged. They thought the world was flat. They thought the world had a dome over it and different things like that. So how do they understand their world? They understand their world primarily through the divine realm. Everything had a God. So the Egyptians, the Babylonians, um, the Assyrians had multiple gods for everything, moon god, sun god, um, you know, god of the rain, god of the harvest, god of fertility, so on and so forth. That's that was their mythology. That's how they looked at the world. That's how they tried to understand the world was through the divine realm. We have a mythology in the 21st century, and this might clear it up for you. Our mythology in the 21st century, how we see the world is through science, mostly. It's mostly imperialistic, what we observe. Um, it's naturalistic in the sense of by an observation of chronicling how long a day is, how long a year is, how long it takes 
for you know things to work. We do that through a whole, we don't say, okay, there's a God up there that's spinning the world 24 hours a day. We have scientific explanations for that. That's our mythology. That's the way we look at the world. Now, doesn't mean it's false. What it means is parts of it are true and parts of it might not be true. So in science, they are always recalculating after they discover new information uh, about things. So they, you know, they had an explanation of how something works and then they discover something new and then they have to reevaluate that hypothesis and they have to adjust their mythology in the sense of how they think everything works. So when you come to the book of Genesis, what you have is a mythology, some of which is true and some of it is probably not, but that's the way they thought it worked. And later on, adjustments will need to be made uh, to uh, clarify uh, what new information brought to people later in time. So we're all stuck in time. We're all stuck in a moment in history. And we don't know as much as the next generation or three generations later will know. There will be more information that will unfold and it will show us where our mythologies are true and where our mythologies might be false or have errors in them. And when we think about the book of Genesis, that is true with them as well. So at the bottom of the screen there, it says Genesis functions in Israelite society the same way that science functions in our culture and the same way that mythology functioned in the rest of the ancient world. It's how they tried to make sense of things. And as they make sense of things, then, you know, um, they acted accordingly. So a couple weeks ago, um, we talked about Abraham. How, uh, how could he take his son Isaac and want to offer him up as a sacrifice in Genesis chapter 22? Well, the mythology of the day was you always offer your firstborn, whether it's cattle or whether it is a child, you offer that to the gods so that you will continue to have further blessing. Abraham's thinking, God has promised that I'm going to be have many people. I'm going to become a great nation. Well, how is that going to happen if I don't stay on God's good side? And so he probably feels that offering his son, and he feels God told him to do that. Again, his mythology frames the way he sees God. God breaks through. God says, don't touch him. Don't touch Isaac. And then God provides a ram caught in the thicket. And all of a sudden, Abraham has a new revelation. This is the God that provides. This is the God that supplies. This is the God that doesn't want me to kill Isaac. And, uh, and so, you know, he'll build an altar. He'll offer the ram. He'll worship God. All of that is a part of the culture that um, is true in his day. That's just the way they saw the world. Okay. Now, when I say defining the term mythology is treacherous, it's because of our own conventions about how we think about mythology. However, hopefully my explanation will help you to see that when we use the term mythology, what we're looking at is how people see their world, both good and bad, both true and false. And we all have a mythology that we live by. You know, the way I like to say it is, we all have our own peephole that we look through. We observe life many times through a peephole rather than being able to see the big picture. So hopefully that is helpful. So the only way I can help more on this is if you ask some questions or make some comments. Any thoughts there? So you think that Abraham was looking through mythology instead of having faith in God that he would provide a sacrifice? I don't think he knew. Uh, later, Paul will say in Romans chapter 4, that Abraham believed that um, 
he was uh, God was going to keep his promise. Now, if he killed Isaac, the only way he could believe that uh, that promise would come true would be if God brought Isaac back to life. So that's a whole different discussion. But Paul kind of imposes upon the story of Abraham this thought that Abraham probably thought that God was going to resurrect Isaac because he said that the blessing was going to come through Isaac, not Ishmael. My point is, I don't think Abraham knew enough about God to know at that point in time to know that God doesn't require uh, some type of sacrifice of firstborn. Um, we see in the Torah, even in the sacrifice of animals, it's still there. The culture is still saying, give the best of your flock and that type of thing. So I don't know. I think his, I think he believes God. He follows God. In fact, God tells him, you are declared righteous. You're, you know, uh, because you believe. But his understanding of God would be much smaller than the unveiling of God through the rest of the scripture. So what he knew, he believed. And God says, that has been credited to you as righteousness, as in, yes, you're doing what's right. You're believing, you know, what what I'm showing you of myself, that type of thing. So I don't know if that answers your question or not. Well, I always kind of thought that he used a little bit of logic. And, well, if God's going to make me a great nation through Isaac, then he's not going to let me do this. Mm -hmm. He's going to stop me at some point. Yeah. Um, he could have been thinking that. We're not told. Uh, the text seems to read that that knife was pretty close to Isaac's neck. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I think we're surmising a little bit about whether or not Abraham believed that God was going to stop him. Um, I, I don't know how to answer that. I think okay. all, all we can do is say it looked as though he was going to go through with it, but God intervened. And, um, and, and thankfully so, you know, uh, that God intervened and, and provided a way out uh, from offering Isaac. These are, those type of stories are the ones that I'm telling you are a bit awkward um, that you read, not just in Genesis, but in other parts of the Old Testament as well. And I think a lot of it is kind of tied to the way they saw the world and how they thought the world worked, that type of thing. Any follow-up? So I, in my message on Sunday, or a couple of Sundays ago, I don't remember which, I told, I told you about folding your hands like this and you look and you see four fingers and four fingers interlocked. Um, so here's what it looks like kind of in a, um, in a graphic form. So in Genesis 1 through 11, you have kind of that primeval section. There's four events, creation, fall, flood, and Babel. And then in chapters 12 through 50, we're, we're calling that the patriarchal section because the primary focus is on Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. However, interspersed are some stories of some other people as well. And one of them is Judah, which I mentioned at the beginning of our time together. Uh, but that's a great way of kind of thinking about the book of Genesis. Um, you don't have to memorize it. I just tried to give to you kind of a visual thing. Oh yeah, if I put my hands together like this, I, I'm remembering what Genesis is about. There's no quiz, there's no test on this. So, <laughs> uh, but Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Now notice here, Abraham has a lot of text. Jacob has a lot of text. Joseph has a lot of text. Isaac does not. And which is kind of interesting that Isaac is kind of like a hinge almost from Abraham to Jacob, and he just has this short little bit in the book of Genesis, even though, uh, you know, uh, when we talk about the uh, God of the Old Testament, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Isaac always gets in there, right? Even though he has 
kind of a little bit in the book, yet he's a hinge because he's the fulfillment of a promise to an old man and an old woman uh, that they were actually going to have their own offspring and God was going to begin a new nation through him. But you would think that he'd get more text in light of the fact that he plays a critical role in fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. Any, any uh, thoughts there? So that brings us to the purpose of Genesis. Um, we might say that Genesis is, is a story of origins. But why, why does the nation need that? So this might not make a lot of sense. And it's okay if it's going to, if it confuses you. Uh, but most scholars think that you, when you read Genesis, you have to keep your eye on David and the monarchy and ultimately uh, the southern nation of Judah. So if the book is written later, as we have said, what is it that they need as they go back into the land? So the whole Pentateuch and the historical books might be a part of kind of calculating who's going to lead us when we get back into the land. And uh, you'll see on the, here on the slide, the book was written during the period of the monarchy, parts of it during David's reign. And so you know, a part of it is this historical accounting of how the nation got started, but parts of it are to defend the idea of the monarchy. They are all clamoring for the days of David again and Solomon because that's the peak of their prosperity and so forth. So as they're coming back into the land from Babylon, um, there are things, and we'll see some of these things embedded in the um, text that doesn't make a lot of sense unless there's some type of justification for Judah being the primary line through which a, a king is supplied. So um, the stories are kind of shaped in a form of kind of defending the present of trying to get an, uh, a descendant of David to be the king to lead the people once they're back into the land. So the stories from the past then are written to serve a present purpose. And the only way you'll understand that is by seeing some things that happen in the book. So I'm gonna give to you an example here. So when you read through the book of Genesis, the younger is always elevated over the older. Okay, so when you think of uh, families, it's a curious thing as to why the younger of the siblings are elevated to positions of power over the older ones. Because normally in the, the line of things, the firstborn is to be the one that succeeds. So even in the kingship in England, who's the next in line? Well, you don't jump over... Uh, Charles, he's the next one in line to be the king after Queen Elizabeth dies. But the book of Genesis makes a case for jumping over these firstborn to um, other people. So I give to you some examples here. Abel over Cain, Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, and Joseph over the other brothers. So all these individuals are elevated in this, this line. So it's interesting that when you read the story of David, um, and you'd have to read Sam, for Samuel uh, to see the story, in particular when there's the confrontation with the Philistines and Goliath, um, who's the one that steps up? Well, it's David, the youngest of the, of, of the brothers. Now, he will be elevated uh, as a king to succeed King Saul, the first king, 
in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16. He comes out of nowhere. Um, when uh, the prophet comes in and talks about who's going to fight Goliath, they go through the whole family until uh, prophet says, well, are there any more? Oh, yeah, there's David. He's out there taking care of the flocks. Well, bring him in. And, and, and this is the man. This is the one. So there's that element. Likewise, David's son, Solomon, takes the reign. Uh, and he shouldn't have been the one that became the next king. Actually, there's the eldest son. If you read 1 Kings chapters 1 and 2, a guy by the name of Adonijah that was the rightful heir to the kingship. But um, it's a long story that we, we don't have time to get into tonight. But you, what you find is that David jumps over Adonijah and tells Bathsheba, I'm going to make sure that Solomon uh, succeeds me uh, on the throne. So you have this dynamic of the younger over the older. And Genesis, in some way, is violating the cultural norm of taking the firstborn son. So part of what Genesis is doing is helping in during the days of the monarchy justify why David is jumping over Adonijah uh, to make Solomon king. And we know why he wants him to be king. It's his favorite son from his favorite wife. Bathsheba. But there's a lot of intrigue that goes into that story because of the way he uh, impregnates Bathsheba. So down at the bottom of the slide here, accepting the primacy of the non-firstborn is the foundation to the survival of the monarchy. So the exile and return of the southern nation of Judah, the younger brother of the larger northern nation of Israel is designated to be the king. Judah, the son of Jacob, Jacob has these 12 sons. Judah is not the oldest. And so what you find is that Judah is selected among all his brothers. Um, and it's curious as to the amount of attention that is given to Judah in the book of Genesis. And the reason being is because Judah is going to be the line whereby um, this ongoing kingship uh, or prominence or leadership out of the rest of the nation. Uh, go to uh, Genesis 49 for a moment. Genesis chapter 49. This is where Jacob is going to um, pronounce blessings upon his sons before he dies. And I want you to notice something here. Um, so in chapter 49, Jacob calls his sons together and he says, gather around and I will tell you what will happen in the days to come. That's verse one of chapter 49. So then he goes down through the list, rumored, Reuben, verse three, you're my firstborn son, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power, turbulent as the waters. You will no longer excel, for you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch and defiled it. Sorry, you're out. Now come down to verse eight. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You're a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch, he will wash his garments in wine, his brother, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine. His teeth will be whiter than milk. He gets a lot of texts, doesn't he? That's quite a blessing that Jacob pronounces over him. But the thing not to miss here is this. 
The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Verse 10. In other words, the line of power is going to come through the tribe of Judah. And so now you have a problem. Now, what time do we have here? So it's eight o'clock. Can you stick with me for five or 10 more minutes? And that'll, yep. and that'll I'll finish this thought. So turn over to chapter 38 of Genesis. It's a whole chapter. And we're given an account of Judah and uh, Tamar. So um, I will, this is long and I'm not going to read it. It says in verse one, at that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua, and he married her. So he marries a Canaanite, all right? And he lay with her, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was, who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. Okay, so Judah has a Canaanite wife, has three sons. Verse 6, Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight. There's a commentary. So the Lord put him to death. Not full how, not given any detail, nothing like that. So the oldest son dies. Then Judah, verse 8, tells the second son, you lie with Tamar. Because that's your responsibility to produce offspring for your brother. And here's that uncomfortable part. So Onan, verse 9, knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother. So, you know, awkward here. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to fulfill this responsibility. Uh, what he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Uh, so Tamar is without any offspring. So the next natural thing that should have happened was the next son, Shelah, was supposed to produce offspring, but Judah is concerned. Verse 11, so uh, Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's house until my uh, son Shelah grows up. In other words, he's not old enough yet, for he thought he may die too, just like his brother. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. So he sends her away and he says, I'll come get you when Shelah's old enough and he will uh, produce the offspring that is needed uh, to carry on the, uh, the line. So, uh, I don't know how you break this up. Verse 12, after a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shusha, Shua, rather, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing sheep, and his friend Hirah, the Adullamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil, to disguise herself and then sat down at the entrance of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw, for she saw that though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. So what she does is she disguises herself. Judah thinks she's a prostitute. He lays with her. And um, and if you read it, she insists that. Um, Judah give her a cord and a staff that he used. She's not stupid. Uh, so, you know, so she's pregnant. And, uh, and then if you jump down, um, it's interesting the way the text goes. Yeah, so Judah's looking for this woman who disguised herself and it comes back to the place where she was and asked, 
where is that shrine prostitute? And got and guys, the guys go, well, we don't know where there was no shrine prostitute here. Um, and so um, it goes on, and then you're jumping forward three months. Take a look at verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. So Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. Okay? And it's there, she pulls out the cord and the staff and says, the guy that got me pregnant is the owner of this. It's Judah. Judah is the one, and um, and it, it's interesting. Judah now confesses um, that he was wrong. Verse twenty-six. Judah recognized them and said, "She is more righteous than I, since I would not give her to my son Sheila." And he did not sleep with her again. She goes on, and she has she gives birth to twins. So what an intriguing story. Why is this in Genesis? Why is this in Genesis? Well, he's not one of the patriarchs, not Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or Joseph. Why all this information in Genesis? Ah, if you read the story of David, this account is parallel to David's story. Both Judah and David are shepherds. Both separate from their kinsmen at Adullam. You can look that up in the cross-references. Judah has a, a friend named Hira, and David has a friend named Hiram. Both stories involve a woman named Tamar. In David's case, Tamar is his daughter, not daughter-in-law, as with Judah. Um, David does not have sex with his daughter, Tamar, but his son Amnon rapes his sister and uh, Tamar's half-brother Amnon, Amnon rather, uh, is guilty of, of rape. And so there's all this is going on. And then when you look at the cross-references between Genesis 38 and 2 Samuel 12, both David and Judah uh, are publicly forced to admit their guilt. So Judah has to confess that he had sex with his daughter-in-law, and David must confess that he had sex with Bathsheba. Now, here's, here's probably why it's in Genesis, the bottom line of the Judah and David story. The Judah and Tamar story, which seems to be so out of place in the book of Genesis, is a way of addressing indirectly a topic that the writer felt could not be whitewashed. David's unjust treatment of Bathsheba and her husband Uriah Judah's parallel episode doesn't let David off the hook, but it does signal to the readers, yes, we know David did a horrible thing, but Judah did, did so likewise. He did a horrible thing, and yet he's honored. Therefore, it's okay that we continue to honor David as well. In other words, the Davidic dynasty is still the best hope for the survival of the southern nation of Judah as they come back into the land. Now, what's interesting, we often call Jesus the lion of what? The tribe of Judah. So here's this fallen individual, Judah, that plays a prominent role, but his story is recorded in Genesis probably because it's a way of justifying the ongoing succession of the Davidic dynasty. So complex, huh? Very complex. But when you get a later date in the book of Genesis, you begin to see why some of the stories are included the way they are. Otherwise, that story about Judah and Tamar just kind of, why is, what, why is this in here? It doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't advance the storyline unless what it's doing is helping to justify the Davidic dynasty that comes out of the line of Judah as they move back into the land. Okay. That'll make your head spin. But that's a deep dive into some of the things that you find in Genesis that we tend not to understand when we just kind of don't understand their world, their mythology, the way they see their world. And, um, it, and 
for those of us in the 21st century, we kind of go, man, that doesn't make any sense at all. And what we tend to do then is take a story like Judah and Tamar and we go, boy, this is pretty sordid stuff here. Okay, how does this apply to my life? Well, it doesn't. Do you see, it doesn't primarily apply to your life because that's not the purpose of it. The purpose of it was for a particular reason in the history of the nation of Israel. Okay, I've said way too much tonight, uh, but it will get easier as we move along in the weeks ahead. But if you can kind of keep these things in, in your mind a little bit, uh, we'll come back and we'll go, oh, now that makes sense. Now that makes sense. Any thoughts, questions as we close our study tonight? Well, I just today read the story of Dinah. Yeah. Um, is that the same type thing that's going on? With... That's, that's in Judges, right? Is no, it that's in Genesis. Oh, in Ge she, oh, that, okay. All right. She's um, Jacob's daughter. Okay. And one of her full brothers... Well, she she gets taken off by this, um, I don't know if he's a Canaanite or, or what he is, but he really likes her as they're moving into the, the country. Uh -huh. And he rapes her and then he decides he's in love with her, wants her as his wife. And he petitions Jacob. And then her full brother... Uh, doesn't like this so mm. they tell him you guys have got to all be circumcised and then on like the second or third day mm -hmm. they come in and kill all the, the men yeah you know what i have not read that story in a while i don't even know how to comment on it without kind of re-looking at it a little bit but my guess would be it's serving some kind of purpose to have it yeah. recorded i i just don't know what it is right now Okay. And as to your question as to why the youngest is always elevated over the older ones, mm -hmm. can you guys see that? No, not real well. What does it say? I'm the youngest child. The rules don't apply to me. There's a lot of truth to that, isn't there? <laughs> it's the baby. As she keeps saying about her her younger uh, brother uh, that, you know, she has, she has uh, one sister and two brothers and the youngest of the, the lot is uh, Joe, her younger brother. Is, and that's what she keeps saying. He got treated the best out of all of them because he was really <laughs> <gay>, right? right? <laughs> okay, hang in there and um, you know, we'll come back to some things. Uh, now, next week, uh, we want to take a look at the two creation accounts that are in Genesis 1 and 2. So if you have uh, some time to read chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, do so and try to, uh, try to find where there are differences between the two accounts, because there are some, okay? So any, any other thoughts before we say goodnight? Well, thanks for your attentiveness, and uh, we have only one more Sunday where it's online only, and that's this week, and then we get, to get can get back together on the weekend. So uh, we'll see you online on Sunday, okay? Thanks, Larry. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.